Welcome to Cancer Conference Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We asked six clinical investigators to comment on some of the most important presentations and posters at the recent ASH meeting in select categories. And to begin, I met with Dr. Craig Moskowitz, who began by commenting on papers in Hodgkin lymphoma, beginning with perhaps the most important advance in this disease in at least a decade. This was the most important lymphoma abstract at ASH, along with its cousin, which was brentuximavidotin in ALCL. Brentuximavidotin is an antibody drug conjugate, an antibody to CD30, which is linked to a microtubule agent called MMAE. It's an orostatin drug. Almost think of it as like a syringe. The antibody binds and the prodrug is injected in. It is enzymatically cleaved and causes microtubule arrest. The fascinating issue is that with the naked antibody, which was SGN30 or MDX60 from another company, the naked antibody had no activity. But the antibody drug conjugate has tremendous activity, where almost 90% of patients had some evidence of clinical benefit, meaning they had tumor shrinkage. With brentuximavidotin, a third of the patients had a complete response. These patients are very heavily pretreated. A number of patients went to allogeneic stem cell transplant, including one of my patients. I am an investigator on this study. I'm actually the principal investigator in an international randomized study of SGN35 versus placebo post-transplant for Hodgkin lymphoma, which is going to be a large study, a four-year study to do. So it's quite a commitment. So I am committed to this agent. This drug has more activity than any single agent I've ever seen in Hodgkin lymphoma. What about the side effects and toxicity? You know, I think it's blown out of proportion in the abstract. In general, the drug is well-tolerated. Grade 1 or 2 peripheral neuropathy is seen in patients. It's usually self-limiting. A rash is seen in about 15% of the patients, which looks a little bit like prickly heat. Other than that, it's very well-tolerated. Could you conceptualize, is this actually anti-tubulin therapy? I mean, is it like a taxane or the other tubulin agents? Some people think it's sort of like a superfinblastine. Trojan horse finblastine. Right, correct. So, you know, sort of targeted finblastine. And as we know, historically, single-agent finblastine probably, historically, has been the most active single-agent in Hodgkin lymphoma. What about combining this agent with chemotherapy? Is that Yes, yeah, so there are, are a lot of studies that are starting. There is a phase one study of ABVD and SGN35. We will be doing an SGN35 ICE study. There are a number of studies that are looking at drug combination programs with this agent. Interesting. What about abstract 415, a randomized phase three study? Yes, quite disappointing. So this was a huge United States intergroup study being led by ECOG, joined by the CLGB, then SWOG. It was our high-priority Hodgkin lymphoma study. We all participated, including us at Memorial. Study for patients with bulky stage 2, 3, and 4 Hodgkin lymphoma, randomly assigning patients to ABVD. If patients got ABVD and they had a single nodal mass of at least 10 centimeters, they could consolidate a radiotherapy at the end. Versus Stanford 5, which is a combined modality treatment program, patients with a 5-centimeter nodal mass or splenic involvement get radiated with Stanford 5. The study was done absolutely correctly. Other randomized studies comparing ABVD to Stanford 5 have been ridiculed for a radiotherapy which was not done correctly. The bottom line is that this study is an absolute wash. There is absolutely no difference between ABVD and Stanford 5. 
I would say that there may be some reasons that you would want to give Stanford 5 to a patient. For me, I like to give it for patients with bulky stage 2 disease. It's only 12 weeks of chemotherapy followed by radiation, and that is equivalent to six cycles of ABVD and radiotherapy for bulky stage 2 disease. The interesting thing, and this has been shown by us, we've reported our results on 100 patients who got Stanford 5, those patients who have multiple risk factors with advanced stage disease, i.e. poor risk advanced stage Hodgkin lymphoma, do worse with Stanford 5. What do you think the reason is? It's not enough chemotherapy. It's only 12 weeks. It was never designed to be an aggressive chemotherapy program. It was designed to decrease toxicity. So... Is the nail in the coffin for Stanford 5? I'm not sure, but I suspect it will be restricted to those patients who need to be radiated with bulky stage 2, possibly stage 3 disease. What about abstract 2828 looking at lenalidomide in Hodgkin lymphoma? So Hodgkin lymphoma has gotten lucky this year. We have four agents, at least, and a number of research drugs. The four agents are SGN35, panabinostat, Everolimus, and lenalidomide. The investigational agents are Cal-101 and a plexicon molecule, which inhibits CFIMS. All have some activity in Hodgkin lymphoma. Lenalidomide has been studied by Nancy Bartlett at Wash U and Honest Eunice at MD Anderson. This is a phase two study from the German Hodgkin lymphoma study group, looking at lenalidomide at 25 milligrams per day, three weeks on, one week off showing that nearly half the patients had some evidence of a response. We don't see anything about response duration. However, well-tolerated in this patient population, and I suspect will need to be studied further. Uh, what about right now, today, any situations where you think it would be reasonable to use it outside a study? I believe SGN35 and panabinostat will be approved for Hodgkin lymphoma this year. What about lenalidomide? Do you think there's any role for attempting to utilize it outside a study? I think that there is a role in patients if neither one of those other drugs are available. Those other two drugs have a very high response rate. Nearly 90% of patients have some evidence of benefit from those two agents. These studies are a little bit too small thus far to state you should use it or not use it. I would have no problem writing a single patient exemption to get lenalidomide and have done it already in Hodgkin lymphoma. How about paper 764? So this is a huge study from the German lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma study group looking at the HD15 trial, which was a program for advanced-stage Hodgkin lymphoma looking at escalated BIACOP given for eight cycles or four versus four. And what they did was they analyzed the outcome of patients based upon their post-treatment PET scanning. In all of their previous studies, any patient who had a single lymph node mass pretreatment of 7 centimeters or a post-chemotherapy lymph node of at least 2.5 centimeters received involved field radiotherapy. That's in every study the Germans have ever done for Hodgkin lymphoma. This is the first time that they asked a question, maybe we don't need to give radiation therapy to everybody with a residual mass of 2.5 centimeters. And by design, they only radiated patients who had a positive PET scan at the end of treatment. And those patients who had a lymph node mass of greater than 2.5 centimeters post-treatment, but with a negative PET scan, those patients were monitored. 
And at the end of the day, patients who are PET negative after escalated be a cop, no matter how big the initial pretreatment mass was or how big the post-chemotherapy mass was, those patients did phenomenally well with a negative predictive value of 0.95. What does this study mean to docs in practice in terms of Hodgkin lymphoma? Well, I think for advanced-stage Hodgkin lymphoma, and remembering the Germans, advanced stage is bulky stage 2B, stage 3 and stage 4, and if you give escalated BIACOP or one of the BIACOP programs. I'm not saying that this will work for ABVD. I don't know. But if you give that program and your PET skin is negative at the end of treatment, there is no role for consolidative radiotherapy. How about paper 3879, looking at interim PET scans in Hodgkin? So this is a study of 300 patients from the Italian Lymphoma Study Group. Half the patients have early-stage Hodgkin lymphoma. Half the patients have advanced-stage Hodgkin lymphoma. Let's remember that 90% of patients with early-stage Hodgkin lymphoma are cured in the pre-PET era. And about 75% of the patients with advanced-stage Hodgkin lymphoma are cured. This study, to me, asked a question, should we be using FGG PET scans in all patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, regardless of the stage? And that's a very difficult question to answer. What Dr. Zinzani showed is that in 150 patients with early-stage Hodgkin lymphoma, 19 patients had an interim restaging PET scan that was positive with early-stage disease. And only four of those patients achieved a CR, kind of implying that if your PET scan was negative at interim restaging for early-stage Hodgkin lymphoma, and if you add the number, 98% of those patients are in continuous CR. Should every patient get a PET scan with early-stage Hodgkin lymphoma after cycle two of therapy? That's still, to me, a debatable question when 90% of the patients are cured. For advanced-stage disease, this is no different than any other study that has shown. For advanced-stage disease, patients who are PET positive after cycle 2 of ABVD have done extremely poorly and are the focus of research questions. This clearly will change practice, though. Of almost all the studies that I've seen that we have reviewed thus far, whether I like them or I don't like them, and I can't say that this is my favorite either in the community, I believe every patient with Hodgkin lymphoma will get a PET scan after cycle two of therapy for two reasons. Number one, as oncologists, we like to give good news. And if your PET scan is negative after cycle two, you have almost 100% chance of going into remission. And this will be a very favorable visit with your patient. And if the PET scan is positive, my issue is that you have to have something to do. And outside of a research study, I'm not exactly sure what docs are going to do in the community, but I suspect that this will happen, and if the PET scan is positive, these patients will be referred to centers for second-line therapy. Very important study. Okay, let's talk a little bit about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. How about Abstract 590 reporting a SWOG study? So the SWOG study, which is a phase two study from the SWOG multicenter, adding I-131 tocitumumab to RCHOP for patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I was very interested in this abstract because there was a memorial study that is finished and impressed where we gave RCHOP followed by yttrium-90 ibrutubumab tioxetam, where there was excellent results in patients with a similar patient population, which has led to 
a very large international randomized study that we're leading. This is a similar study where RCHOP was now given with tocitumumab, and the results are somewhat disappointing. In if one reads the abstract carefully and went to the presentation, the results were no better than previous SWOG phase two studies. My issue with this abstract is the data appropriately is analyzed by intent to treat. However, a number of patients progressed prior to receiving radiomunotherapy. If one would have analyzed the data by therapy received, meaning if you received RCHOP and I-131 tocitumumab, how did you do? I suspect the results would have looked much better. Unfortunately, the SWAG is not moving this program further. And there is a series of negative phase two studies that the SWAG have reported combining something to RCHOP. They did RCHOP and Avastin, which is a negative study. RCHOP with now radiomunotherapy is also a negative study. How about abstract 2871, a combined effort looking at lenalidomide or rituximab in diffused large B cell? So this was an exciting study. It was a poster session on Sunday. There are a number of centers that are looking at combining lenalidomide with RCHOP. This stems from the fact that lenalidomide had very modest single-agent response rate in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma alone. However, if one analyzes the data set based upon the cell of origin of the diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, i.e. germinal center-derived primomediastinal or ABC subtype of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it turns out that the ABC subtype is very sensitive to lenalidomide. This is data that is being compiled by Myron Chuchman up at Roswell Park. So there is excitement for lenalidomide in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and I'm actually glad that this study was done looking at a straight phase one study, adding lenalidomide to RCHOP21, looking at the typical endpoints. A dose of 15 milligrams was deemed to be reasonable. You can't make much about efficacy, but it was well-tolerated. Patients were given low weight heparin for a prophylaxis against DVT, which makes sense. Lenalidomide was given for two weeks and one week off. I think a well-done study. There's a similar study that was done at the Mayo Clinic that I suspect will be reported at Lugano. And what's going on in terms of randomized study looking at lenalidomide? I think that the lenalidomide randomized study that's going to be done is in heavily pretreated patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma looking at single-agent lenalidomide versus best available therapy in patients with relapsed and refractory disease. That's going to be the big randomized study. A randomized study with upfront therapy with RCHOP, I do not know if that's planned or not for now. You mentioned the so-called ABC subtype. What fraction does that represent and what does it really mean? Well, I mean, gene expression profiling has determined that diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is not one disease. And if one just analyzes outcome based upon the cell of origin of the underlying diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and all the patients get the same treatment, either CHOP or RCHOP, there's a survival disadvantage in patients with the ABC subtype, which makes lenalidomide somewhat appealing if it has activity in the unfavorable cohort of patients with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It's definitely an avenue for research. About what fraction of diffuse large B-cell has this so-called ABC configuration? 40%. Hmm. 
about abstract 2806, looking at bendamustine or toximab and diffuse large B-cell? Yeah, I was surprised to see this one. We've been taught that bendamustine has little activity in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, although it is given now, I like to say like candy, in patients with follicular lymphoma and mantle cell lymphoma by lymphoma docs, and rightly so. It is truly a drug that has changed practice, in my opinion. This is a patient population, once again, an elderly patient population in first relapse with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who are transplant ineligible, who in reality have a median survival of 12 to 18 months. And clearly, in this group of patients, you would prefer to keep the patients outpatient with a treatment program that's well-tolerated. So this was a standard program of bendamustine and rituximab given as per label, looking at outcome. The data is analyzed by an endpoint which I do not like, which is modified intent to treat, meaning the patients have to not have progressed by the first restaging, which is done at two months after the initial treatment starts. Many patients with relapsed and refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma will progress prior to that point. It's a standard endpoint that is used commonly in solid tumor patients. However, I don't think it's a good endpoint in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Be that as it may, that was the endpoint that was used, and the overall response rate was 50%. We don't know anything about response duration. It's an ongoing study. But I suspect that this is a good abstract for docs who are interested in giving bendamustine. It's very, very well-tolerated outpatient treatment And if there's going to be a 50% response rate, and if I'm going to be told that the remission duration is approximately six months, I think that that would be appealing. But we have to wait until the study's finished. Yeah, I actually asked Dr. Rummel at ASH about diffuse large B-cell, and he indicated there's a fair amount of usage right now in Germany. Do you think we have enough data right now to consider it as a non-protocol alternative? You know, I think we need something peer-reviewed. This is just an abstract form. I think once something is peer-reviewed, I suspect it will be used. How about your paper, number 420, looking at what we were talking about before, dose-dense R-CHOP followed by ICE consolidation? Well, this is a follow-on to the study that we published in the JCO in April, where we treated 100 patients on our protocol 01142 and had a five-year progression-free survival of 80% in patients with advanced-stage diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This is a study of only patients with primary mediastinal disease, so one of the three subtypes of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and it is the largest study reported in patients with this entity who do not receive consolidative radiotherapy. So it's a little bit different type of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, commonly presents with a very large mediastinal mass, an elevated LDH, locally invasive, typically treated with combined modality therapy and much more common in women than men, and the median age is 30, so commonly confused with Hodgkin lymphoma. Most lymphoma docs would prefer not to give mediastinal radiotherapy to a young woman if possible, especially 36 gray, which would be necessary. So this is a chemotherapy-only program for patients with primary mediastinal large cell lymphoma, and at three-year follow-up, the progression-free survival once again, approaches in the mid-80% range. No one received radiotherapy. Importantly, we looked at interim restaging PET scanning, which was done after cycle four of RCHOP, and patients who were interim restaging PET scanning negative had the same outcome as patients who were PET positive, meaning 
for primary mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma, there is no role for interim restaging PET scanning. If the CAT scan is improving, just finish the therapy that you want to use. So this is something we're writing up now, and this along with dose-adjusted REPOC, which is another chemotherapy program that does not use radiotherapy, will show that this disease probably does not need to be radiated. What do you think is happening to patients being treated in the community? Are they being treated in the community? Are they being referred to tertiary centers? How are they being treated? They are treated in the community, and they usually get RCHOP followed by radiotherapy. What I'm trying to say is that I don't think that that's necessary. I'd rather you reserve radiotherapy for patients who relapse. That means if you have 50 patients, you're radiating all 50 when you probably only need to radiate five. Remember, these are young women. There are issues about secondary breast cancer. Young men, issues about long-term coronary artery disease. doesn't make much sense to me. You were mentioning PET scanning, and maybe you can comment on Abstract 320 in that regard. So this is an important paper. Interim PET scanning just implies that a repeat PET scan is done somewhere in the middle of therapy, whether that's in large cell lymphoma, whether that's done after cycle two or cycle four, is center-dependent. So typically, we review a PET scan based upon visually comparing an abnormal scan to background mediastinal uptake or background liver uptake. So that's a visual result, meaning that if the uptake is greater than a standard norm, it'd be considered positive. There's a lot of inter-observer variability. Sometimes that's difficult to read. Um, There are issues with the type of chemotherapy that you give. There are issues with rituximab. That may not be the best thing to do. The French have championed a different approach to determine what a positive and negative PET scan is, a little bit more quantitatively, looking at the maximum SUV at the site of the hottest lymph node mass. And let's state that that starts off at 20. And then at the repeat PET scan, seeing what the maximum reduction is, by ratio. They looked at this after cycle two PET scan and after cycle four PET scan. And they compared this to a visual technique of a positive versus negative PET scan. And they analyzed data on 100 patients treated with either RCVP or RCHOP14 after cycle two or cycle four of interim PET scanning. And they showed that the visual technique of a positive versus a negative interim PET scan did not predict for outcome, meaning that if your PET scan was positive or negative after cycle two or cycle four, there was no difference in progression-free survival. However, if you look at the SUV max reduction after cycle two of 66% or after cycle four of 70%, there was a difference in outcome, i.e. those patients who were negative had greater than an 85% chance of being progression-free. And those patients who were positive, it was 30% or so. I believe that this makes a lot more sense than a visual technique. I still believe that before changing therapy, we should prove this pathologically. But I suspect that as PET scanning machines become better and better quality, and we use consistent CT PET scanning, that the visual technique will take a backseat to the SGV max reduction. What do you do in your own practice right now? We use something that's called the five-point scale visual technique. Remembering, though, that we don't change therapy unless we approve it by biopsy. That five-point technique is called the St. Thomas criteria, which looks at 
a negative value, a value that is less than mediastinal blood pool, greater than mediastinal blood pool, but less than liver, greater than liver, or new lesions. And this is a technique that is supposed to become standard for visual assessment of research studies. It's still certainly more commonly being used than the delta SUV change for the obvious reasons. Patients go, you know, different scanners can have different results with SUV reductions, and that needs to be standardized. If you could give a rough estimate, understanding that, you know, you see maybe different types of patients that might be seen in practice, but overall, I should ask you first, when you do the scan, second of all, what percent have positive, third, what fraction do you end up biopsying, and fourth, how many actually have tumor there? Sure. So every patient with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma has a positive PET scan. That's given, as does every patient with Hodgkin lymphoma. At interim restaging, it is dependent upon risk factors. But if you lump all the risk factors together, about 60% of the patients will have a negative PET scan and about 40% of the patients will have a positive PET scan. And you need to determine with your nuclear medicine doctor, is it positive or is it just minimal residual uptake? If it's just minimal residual uptake, we will probably consider that negative. But if it's positive, we will do a biopsy and only change therapy based upon a positive biopsy. In our hands, biopsy confirmation is seen in only 20% of the patients with a positive interim PET scanning, which is why I believe, as do many of my colleagues in the United States, that interim FDG PET scan is an investigational tool. And what about the complication rate of biopsy? You know, it depends where it is. Of course, we all would love for the interim PET scan to be perfect, meaning everybody with a negative value is cured and everybody with a positive value relapses. Then we wouldn't worry about doing biopsies, but, you know, everything is not perfect. Complications from biopsies are really minimal. 